Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Scripture reading this evening, this morning, is going to be Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. But before we hear the reading and the preaching of God's Word, let us pray and ask for His blessing. Father God, You have told us that Your words are the very words of life. It is by them that we have been born again. And it is by them that we grow up in our salvation. And so, Father, as we come here this evening, we humbly ask that You would remember Your promise and not allow Your word to return to You void, but cause it to bring forth a, a harvest of righteousness among us, even here tonight and in all those places where this recording is watched and used for worship. Father, this we pray boldly in the name of your Son, in the power of the Spirit. Amen. Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. This is the very Word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The word of the Lord. As we've seen the last few weeks, Hebrews 13 begins with a series of, of bullet point exhortations, each which is meant to, to flesh out in some way what it means for us as the people of God to run with endurance the, the race of faith that has been set before us. The first three had to do with our love for neighbors showing that, that faith in King Jesus necessarily expresses itself in a, a brotherly love for one another. But it also shows itself in a, in a love for strangers and in a love for those who are marginalized and mistreated. Next, we looked at the, the command about marriage. And we saw that, that, again, faith in King Jesus expresses itself in honoring marriage and protecting the marriage bed. This morning we come to the fifth exhortation in this paragraph. It's, it's recorded for us in verses 5 and 6, and it has to do with money. As I said last Sunday, the author's willingness to address these core issues, these, these issues that hit so close to our heart, our, our love for neighbors, our, our view of marriage, our, our use of money and possessions... The author's willingness to, to address these core issues shows us something of the radical nature of faith. Jesus only has two the root disciples. Believing in Jesus, re receiving him as he is revealed to us in the gospel, changes us to the very core of our being, or we haven't really believed in him. 
That's because believing in Jesus is more than mental assent to a few doctrinal propositions. And it requires more of us than than changing a, a habit here or a routine there. Believing in Jesus is believing in Him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the eternal Son of God come in human flesh to give His life as the ransom for many and then to rise again victorious over death that He might ascend to the right hand of the Father and assume the rightful reign over all of creation. And so when we believe in Jesus, It requires us to submit every facet of every aspect of our lives to His Lordship. He is Lord of all. He is the the King of kings. And therefore, faith in Jesus means that we must place ourselves entirely at His disposal. We are His servants, even His slaves, without reservation or qualification. Last week, the the question had to do with with sex. The question was, are we willing to submit our sex lives to his lordship? That's a highly personal question. I think the question before us this morning is just as personal. The question before us this morning is this. Are we willing to submit our finances to his lordship? Are we willing to devote all of our money and all of our resources entirely and completely to his service? This is what the author is demanding. Look again at, verses, at the first part of verse 5. The author writes, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Like the command concerning marriage, uh, this is a, a twofold command. There's a, a positive and there is a negative. There is something that we are to embrace and there is something that we are to resist. And really, this is the way that all Christian ethics work. As you, as you read through the New Testament, you see the authors consistently framing their exhortations in this way. It is not enough merely to put off bad behavior. It is not enough to merely stop doing certain things. What God demands of us is not only to resist the evil, but to do the good. And so there is a positive and there is a negative. Here the the negative is stated first. Keep your life free from the love of money. The love of money is the thing that is to be resisted, but there's also a, a positive. We are to be content with what we have. Contentment is something that is to be embraced and cultivated. And so we're going to look at both of these this morning, beginning as the author does with the negative. The negative is that we are to resist the love of money. And so we must begin by asking ourselves, what does that mean? What is the love of money that we are to resist? I'm sure it could be defined in any number of ways, but but I think it is helpful to think of the love of money as that that feeling, or if you prefer, that, that thought, that money is the ultimate source of good in one's life. The love of money is is looking to money for life, for security, for pleasure, for for power, for protection, whatever it is. It is is looking to money as the ultimate source of good in your life. James says, do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of lights. But the one who, the one who loves money, he thinks differently. The one who, who loves money believes that good gifts are ultimately from money. He may give lip service to the idea that, yes, good gifts come from God, but ultimately he understands that his, his checkbook balance, the amount of money he has in the bank, the, 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 the value of his stock options, these are the things that ultimately determine his good. These are the things that he looks to. These are the things that he cherishes. These are the things that he loves. Looking to money as the ultimate source of your good, that is what we are being called upon to resist. I think we see an example of such love in the people that Jesus describes in chapter 6 of the Gospel of Matthew in his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says that unbelievers, he, he calls them Gentiles because they are those who are not in God's people by faith. He says, Gentiles or, or unbelievers seek after all these things. What things? What are the things that the, the Gentiles are, are seeking after? He tells us it's what they will eat and what they will drink and, and what they will wear. These are the things that they seek. These are the things that they are anxious about. These are the things that consume their mental and emotional and, and physical energy. Their lives are devoted to the pursuit of these things. Now, when I was younger, I used to assume that Jesus must be talking about poor Gentiles, poor unbelievers, people who, who lack the basic necessities of life, because I wrongly assumed that it was only poor people, it was only people who were, who were barely getting by, people who, who couldn't make ends meet, who would spend their lives seeking what they would eat and what they would drink and what they would wear. As a child, I just never thought about those things. I, I presumed upon them. They were always provided. They were never at risk. And so I assumed that, that only poor people would be anxious about these things. But of course, I now know better. I now realize that Jesus' words apply much more broadly. And I see that rich and poor alike, both those with an abundance and those with barely enough, and even those who don't have enough, we can all spend our lives seeking these things. Those who are considered poor, those who are considered rich, those who are, who are considered middle class, even those who are super wealthy can spend their lives seeking the things of this earth because they believe that their happiness is found in such things. And of course, if you are running after the things of this earth, if you are running after the, the treasures of this earth, if your life is, is devoted to those things, if that is where your mental and, and emotional and, and physical energy go, then your life is marked by the love of money. Because that is the very essence of what it means to regard money as the source of your good. Now, not all people seek money for the same reasons. That could make it hard to identify the love of money in our lives because some people seek money for, for pleasure. They, they want the, the, the pleasures that money affords. Others desire prestige. They, they desire the, the reputation. Their, their identity and self-worth are, are tied up in their salary. I read this week an article by a, a guy who works on Wall Street 
And he said that in his late 20s, he was furious when he received a $1.8 million bonus. Not because he needed more money than that, but because a few of his peers received more. And it meant to him that the company valued them more than it valued him. It meant they were better people than he was. And so he was consumed by the love of money, not for for pleasure so much as prestige. Others desire the power that money affords. They, They desire to be able to control the situation. And they know that it's those with money who have control. Others aren't looking for control so much as simply security. They, they, they feel at risk, they're anxious about the future, and they feel that if they just had a little more in the bank, then their future would be more secure. They look to money for protection. But behind all of these various reasons is the same fundamental love. It's the belief that, that money is the source of good, however you define it, in one's life. That is the love of money. And Paul warns us that this sort of love, this this love for money, is the root of all kinds of evil. Think about why that is. Think about why money leads to all kinds of evil. I believe that the love of money leads to evil because the person who loves money will do whatever is necessary to get it. It's simply the way that we are wired. We are wired to do that which we think is in our ultimate best interest. We are wired to do that which we think is for our good. I might dare to go so far as to say we cannot do otherwise. The French philosopher Pascal drove this point home by by pointing out that even the man who takes his own life does so because he believes it is in the service of his ultimate happiness. He takes his life because he believes, as we say, that he is better off dead. He takes his life because he believes that that death is a better option than life. And so even in the ultimate act of self-destruction, he is seeking his own good. It's the way that we are made. It's the way that we've been wired by our Creator. We do that which we believe is in our ultimate self-interest. We're not always right, of course. In fact, we're, we're often wrong. Just, just think of our first parents. Why did they eat the fruit of the, the forbidden tree? Because it looked good. It, it seemed desirable. They thought it was a good idea. They thought it was ultimately in their best interest. They ate the fruit because they thought it was for their good. They were deadly wrong. Their act of rebellion brought sin and death into the world, but even in that rebellion, they were doing what they thought was in their own best interest. This is why Jesus says that a person cannot serve God and money. Because if you love money, if you believe that money is what is your ultimate good, you will do whatever you need to do to get money even if that means turning away from Jesus. One church father put it this way, a man can follow two masters so long as they walk together, but when their paths diverge, you soon see who he truly serves. 
If a person believes that money is the ultimate source of his good, he will turn to the right or he will turn to the left to to go after money rather than following straight after Jesus. And we've seen it throughout human history. Human history is full of the stories of people who have done horrible things in the pursuit of wealth and the pleasures and the, the prestige and the power and the protection that it provides. And that is precisely what the author is warning us against here in this passage. He is warning us not to believe Satan's lie. That that lie that he told at the very beginning, that lie that he has been telling ever since. That we can pursue our ultimate good in the treasures and the pleasures of this life. That money and all that it affords us is the ultimate source of good. So how do we do this? How how do we resist Satan's lie? How How do we not believe what we're desperate to believe in some sense? One way is by what we are doing here. We we here right now are exposing the lie for, for what it is, even as we remind ourselves of the truth. And we must do this not only when we gather, but in the course of our daily lives. We must remind ourselves that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. We must remind ourselves that, that the so-called security of wealth is incredibly fragile, as we have seen on clear display in the past months. We must remind ourselves that our self-worth is, is not determined by our salary and our bonuses. We must remind ourselves that the power afforded, while it is real, it is weakness compared to the power of our true King. In short, We resist the lie by exposing the lie for what it is again and again and again. In our corporate worship, in our private worship, day after day, we return to the truth and we drink deeply of the waters of life. But it's not enough to merely resist and renounce the love of money. As I said, there's also a a positive here. Yes, we must resist the love of money. Yes, we must expose Satan's lie. But we must also cultivate contentment. Again, contentment could be defined in any number of ways, but but contentment is a settled satisfaction with one's present situation. It is a a settled satisfaction, a resting in where you are. We tend to think of such satisfaction as as dependent upon where we are, as dependent upon what we have. Certain circumstances are satisfying. Certain meals are, are satisfying. Certain venues are satisfying. And we can be content when we are in such places. But that is a natural contentment. And what the author is calling for here is, is something more, something supernatural. Notice again what he says. He says, be content with what you have, what, whatever you have. He is calling us to be content regardless of our circumstances. He's calling us for, for a contentment that transcends the particulars of our situation. It's the contentment that we read about in Philippians chapter 4. We, we're so familiar with the verses. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstances. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
He has learned the secret of contentment, whether he has plenty or whether he has need, whether he has an abundance or whether he is in want. He knows the secret of being content. So what is it? What is that secret to which he is referring? Well, he gives us something of a clue in the very next verse when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's one of those verses that gets quoted a lot. It gets put on coffee cups and on posters we hang on our our wall. We can do all things through God who, who strengthens him. But how often do we apply that to the actual context of what Paul is talking about? Paul is saying that that God's power in him is what allows him to be content. It is a supernatural contentment. It is a contentment that that comes through the work of the Spirit in our hearts and in our minds. But the Spirit usually works through means. And so what instruments does the Spirit wield in order to produce this contentment in the heart of believers? I think we find our answer by scanning back to uh, back earlier in the chapter. Earlier in chapter 4, Paul had told the Philippians to rejoice always. It's another one of those famous verses. We are to rejoice always. And as pastors want to say, always means always. In all circumstances, we are always to Rejoice. It's, it's the same call as the call to being content with whatever we have. We are always to rejoice. We are always to be content. But how? But Paul tells us. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He's saying, rejoice always. And if people think you're crazy, let them know you're not. Let them know your reasonableness. Let them know that what you are doing actually makes perfect sense. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. It's not that the Lord is about to return, but He is presently here. He is with us. Even as He promised, He is abiding with His people, and He is working for their good. The King of kings and the Lord of lords the one who became incarnate for us, the one who died for us, the one who rose for us, is now reigning for us. Therefore, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That is the secret of Paul's contentment. It's the same secret that the author points us to here in chapter 13. Look again at what he says. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In God, in Christ, through the Spirit, we have nothing to fear. Because he is with us, everything at his disposal is at our disposal. Because He is with us. Every good thing that you need to do His will is yours. Do you believe that? It's it's a hard thing to believe. It, It sometimes seems obvious that we don't have everything we need. It sometimes seems obvious that there are things that we are, are doing without. So don't misunderstand What Paul is saying, don't misunderstand what the author of Hebrews is saying. 
He is saying that in Christ we have everything we need to do what we have been given to do in this moment, at this time. If we do not have something, if, if something is not at our disposal, it is because we do not need it to do what he has given us to do now. Now, we might lack something that we need to do what we want to do. We might lack what, uh, to, the, the resources to do what we think we ought to do. But if the author of Hebrews is correct, if Jesus' promise is true, if we don't have it, it's because we don't need it. Again, I ask you, do you believe that? Can you rest in that promise? But again, I don't want you to misunderstand what he is saying. This does not mean that we should never ask God for anything because we already have everything that we need. We're actually commanded to ask in the Scriptures. It is, it is good to ask. Remaining silent when you have needs is not what contentment means. Needs and desires are not contrary to contentment. If you've been at Trinity very long, you, you've heard me refer to Paul's instructions to slaves in his letter to the Corinthians. I, I refer to that passage often because it, is, it has meant so much to me personally. Paul says to the slaves in, in Corinth, he, he says, if you are a slave, don't worry about it. If you are a slave, be a slave to the glory of God. If you are a slave, you don't need your freedom to glorify and enjoy God forever. If you are a slave, you don't need your freedom to do what you were created to do. That is a hard saying. None of us are literally owned by another person today. But some of us feel, feel bound. We feel restricted. We feel like we are in chains sometimes because we have so few choices. And Paul says to the literal slaves, if you are a slave, be a slave to the glory of God. If you are a slave, you don't need your freedom to glorify and enjoy God forever. But, he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, but if you are a slave and the opportunity comes to get your freedom, take it. Now how do opportunities to get your freedom come? They come when the slave saves some of his wages. They come when the slave pursues it. They come when the slave asks for it. And so, I think in Paul's instructions to slaves, we have a picture of godly contentment. We must accept our current position with, with humble patience. We, we must accept where we are and trusting ourselves to our good, good Father. Trusting that He has us where He wants us for the time being. But at the same time, we can boldly ask Him for our heart's desires. We can boldly ask Him for the things that we think will set us free to serve Him in even grander and better ways. And we can do what is in our power to, to bring change to our situation. We can pursue it. And when he opens the door, we can joyfully walk through it. Contentment is not against change. It is against grumbling in the present. It is against complaining in the present. The one who is content is content where he is right now 
even if he's asking for God to change where he is. We see then why resisting the love of money and embracing contentment is so important to to running the race that is set before us. If we're going to run well the race, we need this kind of contentment. We need this kind of absolute assurance in God's goodness and in his provision for all of his children. So how do we develop and and cultivate such a faith? How do we develop and, and cultivate a faith that is truly content, free from the love of money? Again, I believe we do it by doing exactly what we are doing here. This is why worship is so important to the life of a believer, because again, we come together to meditate upon not only the lies of Satan, but upon the promises of our Savior. Here, as we gather and as we leave here throughout the week, as we, as we pause to, to worship and we pause to meditate upon God's Word, we remember Jesus' promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, we don't know exactly what Old Testament text the, the author is uh, quoting at that point because he, he doesn't get the words exactly right, and that is actually very comforting to me because I never get my quotes exactly right. So if you struggle with your Bible memory, that's okay. But he, he doesn't get the quote exactly right, but it's close enough to any number of texts in the Old Testament. The Lord said to Jacob, I will not leave you, and I will give you all that I have promised. Moses said the same to the people of Israel as they prepared to enter the promised land. The Lord again came to Joshua and said, I will not leave you or forsake you. And of course, David said it to Solomon as he handed the throne to his son. Maybe that he's thinking of all these passages in composite. Maybe that he's thinking of Jesus' own promise recorded for us at the end of, of Matthew's gospel when he said, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The truth is we don't know and we don't need to know the exact passage that the author is referring to because the author makes it clear that it is an abiding promise. It was the promise to God's people in the Old Testament and it is the promise to us today. We today, as the people of God in Christ, can hear him say to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. God is always and forever with us in Christ by his Spirit. That is the promise. And because that is the promise, we can say with Paul, that when the trials and the tribulations of life come, in all these things we will be more than conquerors. For these things cannot harm us. Yes, they will come. The the floods will rise. The, The fires will rage. But they will not vanquish us. But we will vanquish them. In Christ, our good, that good that we are tempted to look for money to secure, in Christ, our good is already unassailable. And because we have such a promise, we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let me ask you, has that boast been in your mouth these past few months? Has that boast swallowed up all of your anxiety about money or your your anxiety about about how you're going to make ends meet? Whether those be the anxiety of those with plenty or the anxieties of those with want. I suspect that each of us 
has needed to be reminded of these powerful truths. Each of us has, has needed to be reminded of this boast, probably more than once in the past few months. And we will need to be reminded again in the months ahead. Even when this pandemic is past, we will need to be reminded. We will need to be reminded that our savings account is not our security. We will need to be reminded that even when we are struggling, He is with us. We will need to be reminded that in Christ we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? People with money have no such boast. But because such a boast is properly ours in Christ, we can be free of the love of money. We can be content. And because we can be content with whatever we have, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father in heaven, we rejoice in your goodness to us. And we thank you that we do not have to look for money, look to money for a good that is already secure. Father, teach us to expose the lies of Satan and to rest in the promises of your Son. Teach us to say boldly, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Teach us to live in this hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.